If you would, please take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 4. As we continue this morning the Gospel of John, John chapter 4, we will be uh, beginning our reading in verse 27, and we'll read down through verse 42. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 27. John writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says, At this point, his disciples came, and they were amazed that he had been speaking with a woman. Yet no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why do you speak with her? So the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? They went out of the city and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to him, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples were saying to one another, No one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me, and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already, He who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I have sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, He told me all the things that I have done. So, when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two more days. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe. For we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of of the world. Now, as we consider these verses in John 4 this morning, we'll consider them under three main points. First, come and see. Secondly, the food of Jesus. And thirdly, the harvest and its blessings. Come and see the food of Jesus, the harvest, and its blessings. Now, the scene here in John chapter 4, starting in verse 27, is obviously opening up just on the tail end of what we saw last week coming down through verse 26. Jesus had just spoken to the Samaritan woman and had declared his identity as the Christ. The woman had said, I know that the Messiah is coming, and when he comes, he will declare all things to us. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. And then at this point... Verse 27 picks up, at this point, Jesus' disciples show up. And the conversation between Jesus and the woman comes to a close. I think we can all probably understand some of the social dynamics of the situation here and why the conversation would be done at this point. It's one thing for Jesus to break social convention and to have a conversation with a Samaritan woman. That can be awkward enough. And then as they get to talking and cover some of the, the baggage that this woman has in her background, that's, that's awkward. They talk about worship and the difference between the Jews and the Samaritans in that regard. That's not 
That's not too bad on the scale of things as far as awkwardness is concerned. But then Jesus drops the bombshell and claims to be the Messiah. What was she supposed to do with that? How was she going to process that? And then the next thing she knows, Jesus' disciples showed up. If the conversation wasn't already over when Jesus had said, I who speak to you am he, we can be sure that the arrival of a group of men surely killed the conversation. It's going to be done at this point. This was a discussion that had involved some very personal things. Of course, she probably doesn't want to talk about this in front of a group of strangers. And then this last item, Jesus being the Messiah, would surely give her some, some food for thought and some, some need to stand back and think. And so it should come as no surprise that this conversation is over when the disciples get back. That changes the dynamics. If we were there, we would probably say something like, well, I guess I'll be going now. And the disciples, for their part, they don't ask any questions, either to Jesus or to the woman, as to why this conversation is happening, though they were surprised to see Jesus talking with a woman. They were surprised by this. And given the cultural norms and expectations, this was indeed very surprising. There were some elements of Jewish thought that believed that if a rabbi spoke with a woman, even his wife, that it was a waste of time, and potentially, what is worse, a distraction from studying the Torah. There were proverbial sayings among the Jews such as, he who instructs his daughter in the law plays the fool. Do not multiply discourses with a woman. Let no one talk with a woman in the street, no, not with his own wife. It was reportedly said among them that talking with a woman is one of the six things which make a disciple impure. Now, given that the rabbis sometimes thought and spoke in such ways, we can understand why the disciples would have been surprised to see their rabbi speaking with a woman. But they kept their mouth shut. Sometimes that is indeed the better part of valor, isn't it? Just to keep your mouth shut. And for her part, the woman goes back to town, to Sychar, to talk to the men of the town about this man that she had met at the well. And John gives us the incidental detail there in verse 28 that she left her water pot. Now, no elaboration is given as to why, but given the nature of the conversation and given the way that it ended, it seems, and we get the idea, that this woman was probably very distracted, probably had much bigger fish to fry, a lot bigger things on her mind than her initial purpose of going to the well. So she leaves the water pot behind, goes back to town, and says to the men there, Come and see a man who told me all things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? Now we see in this, this woman here an example of someone whose heart had been aroused by meeting Jesus. She becomes forgetful of the things of the earth and preoccupied with something that is much deeper and much more substantial. And in her joy and her wonder, she went and told others, about Christ. Augustine said of her, having received Christ the Lord into her heart, what could she do now but leave her water pot and run to preach the gospel? Calvin said of her, scarcely had she tasted Christ when she spreads his fame throughout the whole city. She would have acted inconsiderately if she had assumed the office of a teacher, but when she desires nothing more to excite her than to excite her fellow citizens to hear Christ speaking, we will not say that she forgot herself or proceeded farther than she had a right to do. She merely does the office of a trumpet or a bell to invite others to come to Christ. Now this woman was no doubt very ignorant of very many things. 
But she knew that she had just met someone quite remarkable in meeting Jesus. And she seems to have been convinced, in fact, that Jesus was indeed the Christ. And as much as we find later on there in the chapter in verse 39 and following that as a result of her testimony, many of the Samaritans believed in Jesus, seems only natural to assume that she herself also believed. And in that faith, still young and as of yet still uninformed about many things, very ignorant about so much, yet nevertheless in that faith, she went out and told others about this one that she had met. She urged them to come and meet him. For themselves. Now there's some helpful lessons for us here. For one, we learn that any believer can evangelize. As we've already heard, this woman lived at a time and a place where women were looked down upon. On top of that, this was a woman with a history. The men of the village are probably very familiar with that history. And even on top of that, she knew next to nothing about Jesus. But even a woman with a history who knew next to nothing about Jesus could at least go and tell others to come and see. She was not a repository of sound doctrine nor of great learning. She wasn't going to be able to answer too many questions. But she had met Jesus and she could tell others where to go to meet him. She could say, come and see a man who told me all the things that I have done. This is not the Christ, is it? And the people of the village, what did they do? They went to see Jesus And they believed in him as well. And verses 39 to 42 bear this out. The Samaritans believed because of the woman's testimony. They went out to see Jesus. They wanted to see him, talk to him, and get to know him. And they even asked him to stay with them for a while. And so he stays for two days. And in the course of those two days, many more believed because they had heard Jesus for themselves. And then what is quite remarkable, the end of verse 42, they said that, We have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Now this confession here of the Samaritans is really quite amazing. J.C. Ryle went so far as to say, A more full declaration of our Lord's office as the Savior of the world is nowhere to be found in the Gospels. Nowhere else do you find someone saying it that straightforward. This man is the Savior of the world. Now, maybe they didn't understand the full significance of what they said. Maybe not. But whether or not that is the case, it's certainly true that these Samaritans were on to something and that most of those to whom Christ ministered were slow to see it if they ever saw it at all. And what is more, from all we can tell, it seems that Christ performed no miracle here. Now, obviously, he displayed his supernatural knowledge and telling the woman her past history, but we're not told anything explicit with regard to miracles that were performed, as in contrast to the miracles that he had performed back in Jerusalem, as we're told in chapter 2, verse 23. And then in the the end of the chapter, and what follows on from verse 42, we have this, this contrast, so it seems, because when Jesus goes into Galilee, they come and ask him to perform a miracle, and Jesus says in verse 48, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. It seems here, in verse 42, that this faith of the Samaritans is simply faith based on hearing. Hearing the word of Jesus firsthand. And therefore, it seems that the picture is, is that they believed without seeing any sign or any miracle being worked. The faith of the Samaritans and their 
apparent love for Jesus as seen in their desire that he would stay with them is a noteworthy contrast from what we see so often in the ministry of Jesus. In Galilee and Judea, he was often despised and rejected. And you think of, you think of those, uh, that case where he cast the demons out of, uh, out of that man who was living among the, the tombs and the, the demons go into the pigs. And then what happens after that? Everybody comes down and begs Jesus to get out of there. Here they're begging him to stay. Right? They love Jesus. They want to know him. They believe that he is the Savior of the world. In this case, we see the last being first and the despised of the world coming to believe in Jesus. To the Jews, these Samaritans were heretical half-breeds. But these were the ones who said, we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. The conduct of the Samaritan woman that we observe here should be an encouragement to all of us who know Christ. We can tell others about him. We, too, can invite others to come and see. I know we often worry about not having all of the answers to the questions that might be asked when we try to point others to Jesus. And certainly we should, as Peter would say, 1 Peter 3.15, we should be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. We should. But depending upon our Christian maturity and our knowledge and wisdom and so on, we're going to be able to do that to different degrees and different levels. The Samaritan woman's account for the hope that she had in her was simply the fact that Jesus had told her everything that she had ever done. This woman wasn't exactly knee-deep in apologetics, but she gave a reason for believing that Jesus was the Christ, and that was sufficient to encourage others to come and see. And so by all means, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. Be ready and able to tell others why you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came into the world. We should be growing in our knowledge of Christ by growing in our understanding in the Word of God. Apologetics and defense of the faith have their rightful place. But when we find our own knowledge at an end, and when we find questions asked of us that we cannot answer, we need not despair. We can simply invite others to come and see for themselves. We can invite people to come to church so as to hear the word of God proclaimed. We can point them to the Bible so that they can read it for themselves and see there in the pages of Scripture who Christ is. How many people have been converted to Christ simply by reading the Bible for themselves? A large number of people. We don't all come to know Christ in that way, but many have been converted in that way. Sometimes this tactic of inviting others to come and see can be accomplished by bringing someone who has questions that we can't answer and taking them to someone who is more seasoned and more knowledgeable than we are. Even though Jesus our Lord is no longer physically present on earth and in that sense we can't take them to some physical location where they can meet Jesus and have a face-to-face conversation with him, nevertheless there are several different ways in which we can invite others Come and see. Invite them to hear the word preached. Invite them to look at the word themselves. Invite them to come and meet someone who knows more than we do. and might be able to answer questions that we cannot. And if you're here today and you have not yet trusted in Christ, I would extend this invitation for you to come and see as well. Come and see. Listen to the word of God here in church as it is read and as it is taught and preached Listen to the word of God as it is sung in the psalms and hymns. 
Read the Bible for yourself and see who Jesus is. See who he claims to be. Look at this message of his as it's expounded in the prophets and the apostles who are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Come and see the fact that Jesus is indeed the Christ. And if you have more questions about Christ or how to come and see him, you can talk to me after the service or you can talk to another Christian whom you happen to know here. We would love to tell you more about how you can come to know Christ. Now this brings us then to our second point, which is the food of Jesus. In the course of this narrative in chapter 4, after the, the disciples show up and the woman leaves and goes back to the village, the disciples take the opportunity to urge Jesus to eat. After all, that is why they had gone into the village and left Jesus there at the well. They had gone into Sychar to buy food. And evidently, they bought it and had brought it back with them and urged Jesus to eat. But Jesus says in verse 32, I have food to eat that you do not know about. And as we've seen before, so we see here, again, Jesus is often misunderstood. The disciples think, oh, well, maybe, maybe somebody else had brought him food. Of course, that is not what Jesus is talking about at all, as he explains in verse 34. My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his works. And uh, this means, if I may borrow the words of John Gill, that doing the will of God was as delightful and refreshing to the soul of Christ. He took as much pleasure in it as a hungry man does in eating and drinking. In other words, doing the will of God was the very thing that caused great delight to Christ. It was the very thing that refreshed him and brought pleasure to him as much as a good steak dinner or fill in the blank, whatever, whatever your favorite meal is. This was what it was for Christ to do the will of the Father. For Christ, doing the will of God meant coming to earth, becoming incarnate. It meant walking in obedience to all of God's commands, living a righteous life. It meant ministering to people, healing the sick, casting out demons, proclaiming the gospel, revealing the Father. Doing the will of the Father meant working so as to accomplish salvation for his people, saving his people from their sins. And so we find Jesus saying later on, John 6, 39 and 40, This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. And so Jesus delighted to do the will of the Father. It was refreshing and wonderful to him. And thus it was that after this conversation with the Samaritan woman, Jesus could say to the disciples, I have food to eat that you do not know about. From a figurative point of view, Jesus had been eating while they were away buying food. From a figurative point of view, Jesus was getting ready to eat in that there were many Samaritans who were or would soon be on their way to see Jesus and talk with him. And Jesus then proceeds to speak of the will of the Father in the verses that follow. The will of the Father is that there is a harvest to be gathered. There is a harvest of souls. Now before we move on to, to speak of the harvest and its blessings, let's stop to consider here what a great blessing it is that we have such a Savior as Jesus Christ, whose food it is to do the will of the one who sent him. This means that Jesus is 
not in the least a reluctant Savior. Christ is a joyful Savior who rejoices in doing the Father's will, therefore rejoices in saving sinners. Doing all that Christ did for our salvation was humbling and difficult. We're told in Philippians 2 of how he existed in the form of God, yet did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but humbled himself by taking on the form of a servant and being made in the likeness of men. This was true humility, for God to become man, for the eternal word of the Father to become flesh. And, of course, as Philippians 2 makes clear, the humility of Christ did not stop at the incarnation. That's where the humility started, but it continued on much further beyond simply the incarnation. The Son of God humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, death on the cross. Jesus submitted himself to the agony and the suffering of the wrath of God on the cross. And the hideous thing about it was was that Jesus was forsaken by the Father as he was bearing our sins. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus died under the wrath and curse of the Father for us. And he was buried. And to all appearance, this looked like the end of the road for this man Jesus. His lifeless body is placed in a tomb, is wrapped up with spices and linens. All of this is shameful and difficult and agonizing. But yet, this was Jesus eating his food. All of this was Jesus doing the will of his Father. All of this was Jesus doing what was delightful and refreshing and pleasant to his soul. Now, how do, how do we make sense of this? Because we know that Christ sweat drops of blood as he anticipated the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. We know that he pleaded with the Father that if it was possible for this cup to pass from him, that the Father would allow it to pass. As he says in Mark 14, 34, his soul was grieved to the point of death. It was agonizing and unpleasant to the flesh. And that was just in the anticipation of the cross. The physical pain of the, the beating and the scourging and the crown of thorns and the nails going into his hands had, as of yet, not even occurred. And yet our Lord says that it is his food to do the will of his Father. How can this be? It wasn't that the cross was pleasant, but it was that the ultimate effect and gain of the cross was pleasant. And so we're told in Hebrews 12, too, that it was for the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of God. He was looking ahead. He was looking past sufferings, looking to the glory that would follow. It was for the joy set before him. If it is said of Moses that he chose to endure ill treatment rather to enjoy the pleasures of sin... Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward, then how much more can it be said of our Lord Jesus Christ that he chose ill treatment? The humility of the incarnation and the humiliation and agony of the cross, because he too was looking to the reward. He was looking to the reward of that day when he appears with all of his redeemed people and declares, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me, He was looking forward to the reward of the worship that is rightfully due him as the angels and elders around its throne proclaim, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and power and glory and blessing. It was the food of Jesus to do the will of the Father. 
This brought glory to the Father and in turn brought glory to the Son as well. As Jesus said in John 17, 4 and 5, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work which you have given me to do. Now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory I had with you before the world was. It's the food of Jesus to do the will of his fathers, of his Father, and this should cause us to rejoice because the fruit of this is our salvation. The will of the Father was that there would be a harvest of souls. And Jesus speaks of this harvest there in verses 35 through 38. Let's, let's look to those verses again. This is our third point, the harvest and its blessing. Verse 35, Jesus says, Do not say, do you not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields, that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. So that the one who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Now in these verses we see Jesus making a comparison between an earthly agricultural harvest and the harvest of souls for eternal life in the kingdom of God. And he begins by contrasting the agricultural reality with the spiritual reality. They might be right to say that it would be four months until the harvest of grain would come, but Jesus would have them to be awake and alert to the spiritual reality that was right in front of their eyes. The harvest of souls was not simply something that was out in the future. The harvest was something that was happening right before them. The fields were already white, which is to say that they were ripe for the harvest. And Jesus says that the reapers were already gathering fruit for eternal life. That is to say that those who were, were ministering the gospel, the reapers, were already gathering in this, this harvest of souls, souls who gain eternal life through the proclamation of that gospel. Jesus said that this harvest was happening then, and this is a harvest that continues until the last day. Now, obviously, the work of gathering fruit for life eternal is good and glorious in and of itself. But Jesus tells us here that he who reaps is receiving wages and that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. In other words, the the reapers in God's field are not just out there drudging along, doing their work because they're supposed to. Instead, the reapers in God's field are receiving wages themselves, just as it was Jesus' food to do the will of the Father, so too, as it were, it is the food of these reapers to do the will of the Father by participating in the plan of salvation as those who bring the word of the gospel to the lost and gather them for eternal life. Those reapers receive their wages. They have pleasure and satisfaction in their work. They are blessed to be a blessing. And thus Jesus says at the end of verse 36 that he who reaps and he who sows may rejoice together. And we gather from this, incidentally, that there are more occupations than one in this kingdom enterprise of working in God's field. There are some who sow, there are some who reap. Their jobs are different, but they rejoice together in the labor and in the profits of the enterprise. And this impression that we get from verse 36 then is borne out in what follows For in this case the saying is true, one sows and other reaps. I sent you to reap 
that for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Sowing had already taken place, and that the prophets of old, in some cases John the Baptist, had done this work of, of sowing. And now the disciples are entering into the work. At this point uh, in the ministry of Jesus, they were just beginning to enter into this work of reaping. And they would enter in more to, to greater extents during the earthly ministry of Christ, and then more fully after the day of Pentecost. The work preceding uh, these disciples, though, was long in coming. The work of sowing had been going on for centuries. But the disciples entered into that work they began to reap what the others had sown. The sowers and the reapers had different jobs and different functions to perform, but they were working together toward the same goal, and in the end, they all rejoice together. And what we see here in Christ's words, particularly applied to this situation regarding the apostles as reapers and the prophets of the Old Testament as sowers, is also true in the kingdom of God today. Even today, there are some who sow and some who reap. That's not to say that the roles of sowing and reaping are so divided that some people don't do both. Some people do both. Some sow and reap also. But nevertheless, in God's wisdom, he sometimes uses different believers for different particular tasks. And Paul touched on this very thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 as we read together in our unison reading this morning. As he contrasted his own work with that of Apollos, he said, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. I planted, Paulus watered, God was giving the growth. So then, neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God who causes the growth. Now he who plants and he who waters are one, but each will receive his reward according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's, God's field, God's building. In other words, there are, there are different tasks in the kingdom. The Holy Spirit gives grace for those tasks according to his will. But despite the different tasks, those who perform them, Paul says, are one. Christ says they rejoice together. Certainly none of us are apostles or prophets, but nevertheless we may all take part in this joy because we may all take part in the labors of the gospel. We may all participate in evangelism. Sometimes evangelism is accomplished in the sowing of the seeds, the spreading of the gospel, the sharing of the gospel that may not bear immediate fruit. Sometimes evangelism takes the form of reaping when you're the one who finally helps to, to bring in someone from their journey as they cross over from being dead in sins to new life in Christ. Maybe they've heard the gospel many times before, the seed had been sown, and you happen to be the one who is there to help lead them to new life in Christ. Now, there's lots of sowing that takes place here in church. Sowing takes place in children's Sunday school classes. Sowing takes place in Awana. And sometimes then we are blessed to see the reaping take place when there are professions of faith and baptisms. And so let me just speak a word to you who are sowing the word of God into the lives of our children and our young people. Please know that your labor is not in vain. Please know that it is appreciated. There be no harvest to reap if there were not sowers who sowed. 
The words of Basil Manley Jr.'s hymn, Soldiers of Christ in Truth Arrayed, may certainly be applicable to cases like yours. Morning and evening sow the seed. God's grace, the effort shall succeed. Seed times of tears have oft been found, with sheaves of joy and plenty crowned. So keep on serving. And you are doing this gospel work. You're doing great work for the kingdom of Christ. Please keep going. We thank you. Laboring in the gospel also includes edifying and building up other believers in Christ. And all believers can and should be of help to the body of Christ in this regard. This is done in different ways. Some do this by formally preaching and teaching in the church. Some do this more informally by mentoring or discipling other believers, whether it's an intentional uh, meeting together so as to instruct and help someone grow in Christ. Sometimes this happens informally, even as conversations take place here at church. Paul wrote to the church of Rome as a whole and said, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. He said that the church as a whole is full of goodness and is able to admonish, which is to urge or to caution and advise. Likewise, Paul spoke to the Corinthians and said, There are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are varieties of ministries, but the same Lord. There are varieties of effects, but the same God who works all things in all persons. But to each one the manifestation of the Spirit is given for the common good. And so, brothers and sisters, since this is true... Let's all join in the work according to our gifts and abilities and callings, knowing that he who plants and he who waters are one, knowing that the sowers and the reapers rejoice together in this enterprise. And we can rejoice now both in the goodness of the work itself and in the fruit that we see arising from it and rest assured that we will Rejoice eternally in the harvest of souls as well as we join with them in the praise of God and of the Lamb for all eternity. It is said in Daniel 12.3 that in the resurrection, those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever and ever. So let's seek to do that work, to lead many to righteousness, to join in this harvest and therefore to receive its blessing. Let's pray.